Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Rishi Sunak's first 10 days in office. And you ask us, is it ever right to focus on a politician's appearance or presentational style? So Rishi Sunak's had his first 10 days in office as prime minister. I want to ask each of you how you think he's doing so far. Andrew first. Quite well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think... When it comes to the performances in Prime Minister's questions, you know, he can do the job. He can get the Tory benches roaring. He can deal with some very, very carefully crafted, tough and sharp questions from Keir Starmer. And he kind of looks and sounds the part. Second, he's got the markets quietened and quelled and relatively reassured for the time being. He's put off those big financial decisions. Third, by and large, the Tory party in Parliament is relatively quiet and quiescent. There aren't big rivalrous groups going for him. But he has made some really big mistakes um, and he has got some big trouble ahead. I, I, I would broadly agree with most of what Andrew said there. I think one of the problems that he's had is when he came in, his, his big selling point was, you know, I'll bring integrity and accountability and honesty at, at every level. And then one of his first decisions was to reappoint Suella Braverman, Home Secretary. And she obviously had been forced out of her position a week earlier for breaches of the ministerial code. That kind of felt very Boris Johnson and not the re new Rishi Sunak, which he put himself forward as. So he's a bit of a shaky start. Yeah, I have to say a lot of the people I know who aren't involved in politics, who are sort of semi-interested in all of this, said to me, you know, kind of along the lines of, I thought Rishi Sunak was a decent sort. I don't understand why he's made that appointment. So I do think that kind of sullied that reputation of him being a sort of a politician of integrity as he sold himself out. I do understand why he made that appointment because his campaign to become Prime Minister, the internal campaign we barely saw from the outside, depended at a crucial moment on persuading Boris Johnson that although he had just over the required 100 votes to go to the party membership, actually there was so much momentum, so much wind behind Rishi Sunak that it was pointless. And the moment that that appeared to be apparent was when Suella Braverman came out to support him. Yeah. And it looked, well, if, if Rishi Sunak has also got that part of the right of the party, it's effectively all over. And Boris Johnson looked at that and thought, OK, I give in. And so you could argue that Suella Braverman was why Rishi Sunak is now prime minister. I mean, that's overdoing it a bit, but you could argue that. So he owed her big 
I don't think it was a, a sort of grubby deal in the way that Labour points out like that. I don't believe they had that conversation. But I do think he then thought, I've got some really hard decisions to get through the House of Commons, particularly on tax rises. And it's going to be much harder for the right, as it were, the exiled right, to come after me if I've got Suella Braverman at my elbow. And so I think that's why he did it. But I completely agree with Rachel. I think it's been a really bad decision for him. We're talking about his first 10 days, his first attempt to present himself to the country as a fresh face, a new start. Here we go all over again and we're straight back into this. Yes, and actually it is a continuing headache for him because of the scrutiny that she's under in terms of the treatment of asylum seekers at the Manston processing facility, which, you know, is just a story that goes on and on. And what it does is it's highlighting a policy failure for the Conservatives. They haven't managed to stop those channel crossings, as they've said they are aiming to do. The Rwanda deal hasn't worked. And so all they're doing really is shining a light on something that they haven't managed to fix. Yeah, That's absolutely right. If you, if you break down what's gone wrong, I think there are two obvious elements to it. One is relations with other countries. You know, there has been no real attempt to engage the Albanian government and look at why that trafficking thing starts in Albania and what can be done to stop it. There's been no real engagement with the French. In fact, you know, famously Liz Truss kind of more or less insulted Macron and they're still very, very worried about the Irish border issue. You know, if they had engaged really well with Paris, then perhaps this could have been solved in a different way. But they haven't done those things. So that's a, that's a failure. And the second failure is simply a bureaucratic failure. I was talking to somebody who has seen the way the Home Office deals with individual migrant cases. They're still using ancient, outdated, very complex Excel spreadsheets with hundreds of columns to try to deal with this, which is why they're processing things so slowly. So it's an old-fashioned, straightforward management failure. One of the reasons I think Rishi Sunak put Swella Bradman in there is because he kind of assumed the party had enough credit in the bank to still play culture wars on the issue. And because of their fall in the polls, because of the mini-budget, because it's at a, lo- at a low in terms of popularity, I think they just don't have the space to do that anymore. So when they try and take risks with the kind of rhetoric that Braverman used in the Commons, you know, this whole, you know, invasion of our southern coast, I just don't think they can get away with that anymore as they could when Boris Johnson was kind of still riding high after the the Brexit vote and after the 2019 election, you know, they're under a new level of scrutiny now. Yeah, that was a bit of a Boris Johnson trick, wasn't it? Because actually immigration levels are higher than they were before the EU referendum. And actually they've liberalised the immigration system. So in order to make that more palatable or perhaps to distract from their more right wing voters, they use that kind of rhetoric or they introduce the Rwanda deal as, as Boris Johnson did. And that's the calculation. I don't think that's working anymore. I think Rachel makes a very, very good point about that. You know, one part of political credit affects the next bit and so on. Um, I thought what was really striking is, you know, you would never in the old days hear the Labour Party going on about immigration. It just didn't happen. And Keir Starmer didn't just use one question in Prime Minister's questions on immigration to have a go at the Suella Braverman sore point. He used every single one of his six questions on the sheer allegation of utter incompetence. And I was watching the Tory benches and yes, they cheered when uh, Rishi Sunak did the predictable business about Brexit and you once supported Jeremy Corbyn and stuff. But by and large, they knew that Keir Starmer had a good point and was cutting through. And I think Keir Starmer's team thought that was one of his strongest performances of PMQs. And that again goes back to the migration problem. Hmm. And can Suella Braverman survive, do you think? I mean, you wrote in your piece for the New Statesman this week that you thought that Rishi Sunak doesn't agree with the rhetoric that she's using for a second, I think you said. I can't believe that he would approve that word invasion. 
If he did, he's a much more cynical politician than we have seen so far. I don't believe he did. I think that she can't survive. I don't know when she'll go. I mean, it might be months, it might be weeks, it might be days, but it seems to me that she has made so many errors so quickly that we're waiting for the next one and that almost certainly there will be a next one. And although she is, as it were, the chosen Boudicca of the Tory right at the moment, even that won't save her. You can see there are big parts of the ERG, for instance, who looked at her leaking of sensitive government documents. And the fact that, you know, you talk around Whitehall, lots of people will say, well, she'll just open her mouth and tell you all sorts of extraordinary stuff that she really shouldn't. Mm. And, you know, she is Home Secretary. I just don't think this is sustainable in the long term. OK, so we'll see how that pans out then, because that's a tricky decision for Sunak. But the next challenge for him, really, and Andrew, you mentioned this at the top, is the economy. And we're recording just before the Bank of England is expected to put interest rates up again, which could cost the average mortgage holder £1,000 more a year. You know, people are really worried out there. And then you, of course, have the looming autumn statement coming in November. It's been deferred and, you know, we're being told eye-watering decisions will be made in that statement. So what kind of things are they planning and what are the toughest decisions? Well, we keep hearing that tax rises are sort of more likely than the spending cuts at the moment, or they're likely to make up as big a proportion as any spending cuts because we've got the budget coming on November the 17th. Um, That's a tricky sell for some Tory backbenchers. Absolutely, yeah. I think some of the tax rises that might be more troublesome to Sunak than, than the spending cuts, mm-hmm. I would have thought. But just how, what proportion is they going to make it up on, we're not entirely sure yet. I think the real test for Jeremy Hunt is he needs to be able to say to Tory backbenchers worried about the tax rises, look at having to do on the spending side, do you really want me to go further on that? Do you really want me to have further cuts on English schools or local authorities or the defence budget? Is that what you want? The price for not doing those things are these tax rises. And I think, I mean, they've been making so much noise about tax rises. There's a lot of softening up going on. They won't be quite as dramatic, perhaps, as we've been hearing. But I think he'll do quite a lot on thresholds, freezing thresholds. Again, gets him about another £5 billion. The Financial Times did a very good breakdown of where the money could come from, I should say. And I think certainly windfall taxes seem to be back on the agenda. It's another Labour idea that's been taken by the Conservatives or another Labour fox that's being shot, depending on your choice of imagery. Um, (laughs) But I think we'll see those kind of things. I do think, actually, the harder stuff is going... And I, Sorry, I should should also say, I think they're going definitely uprate benefits. I think the triple lock is safe. There's a lot of, is the triple lock safe, a lot of the conservative press go on and on and on about it, knowing their readers, their pensioner readers worried about it, but because it was in the manifesto so clearly, we'll come on to the manifesto later, and because conservative voters are so concerned about it, I think the triple lock is probably safe, and I think uprating of benefits is likely, we will see, maybe they won't, but it's very hard to understand Rishi Sunak's relentless rhetoric about being compassionate, if that's not what it means. I think the toughest stuff will be the departmental spending cuts, which are going to be really, really painful, really bloody, and we'll be talking about Tory austerity 2.0 by then. Yeah, and remember, we're already in it, really, because of inflation. That's eating into those departmental budgets already. What about national insurance? Because this was such a big thing when he put it up as Chancellor. It's been reversed. Will he reverse the reversal? And could that spark a row in the party all over again on this issue? Potentially, yeah. And I think that would also be difficult for Labour because they've voted to get rid of the national yeah. insurance rights. <laughs> they have to keep switching. But on the other hand, you've seen that the, the NHS is saying that it needs another £7 billion amid all of the COVID backlogs and because of the state of the NHS at the moment. So 
just how are they going to pay for those? You know, that, that money for, with the NI rise was supposed to pay for it. So, and every report that we read coming out is that health spending is going to be protected. So yeah. how it's going to be paid for is just, is the question on everyone's lips really. Yeah, and it's one of the things, you know, most visceral to voters, isn't it? Everyone knows someone on the NHS waiting list now, or they're on it themselves. Excess deaths we now know are higher than they were during COVID. So, you know, why is that? Because people are waiting for treatment and they're getting sicker while they wait. People have thought it probably won't be cancer. I'll leave it for a yeah. bit. It's probably all right. I'll leave it for it and then it's too late. Yeah. And the third challenge, I think, which has already been mentioned in our, in our discussion, is some of the flip-flopping that Rishi Sunak has done since coming in. The flip-cop, maybe we can call it. <laughs> flip-cop, very good. Very good. Um, so he said he wouldn't be going to cop, he wouldn't have time, you know, he's too busy with domestic issues. Now it looks like the pressure has, has meant that he's changed his mind and he will be going. What does this tell you about Sunak as a politician and also his government's approach to the environment? So the first thing it tells us is that, and this is a truism, but really important, is that being prime minister is a dead hard job. It's very, very difficult. Everybody thinks at the top level in politics they're ready for it. Nobody really is. And I think in Sunak's case, he is absolutely a numbers guy. He goes through the spreadsheets. He understands statistically what's going on. And that gives him an inner self-certainty that we have underestimated. He's a tougher politician than we thought. And that's partly because of the numbers aspect. But, but, He's not somebody who has thought very much about foreign affairs in the abstract or about the environment in the abstract. We're told, he's told me his daughters keep feeding him the importance of the environment. But, you know, he has been a relatively narrow band politician up to now. And now he suddenly has to look in all directions at the same time. I think simply he just thought, oh, cop, cop. Yes, I know about cop. We don't really need to do cop. And didn't properly consider the importance of it. But it has been extremely embarrassing. He will have to go. It's unfortunate the king wanted to go and is still not allowed to go. That was damaging. It's part of the very, very fast learning process. I mean, 10 days. He's only been prime minister 10 days. He's never been prime minister before. He's watched Boris Johnson doing the job very, very differently. And he's got to learn incredibly fast. I was, I was actually in, in Isha, which is a Tory Lib Dem marginal, uh, in the sort of commuter belt of Surrey on the night of that fracking vote that eventually led to the, the, the fall of Liz Truss's government. And there, even though the main topic was cost of living, even among these affluent voters, the main thing that they'd spotted was... King Charles not going to cop. And I realised, you know, when Rishi Sunak made the decision that he wasn't going to go, that that was going to be a big issue for him in the so-called blue wall, because these are the voters, presumably, that he is more appealing and reassuring to. Um, so it's very important to sort of that contingent, which is significant for Conservative electoral prospects. What Rishi Sunak is going to have to learn, I think, actually, is that you should see problems coming down the track. Mm. And I think he should have thought as soon as as soon as the issue of COP came up, that Boris Johnson was likely to go. Mm -hmm. And that if he had to get to a position where he looked like he was U-turning after Boris Johnson had confirmed he was going, that that would make him look really weak. And that's exactly what happened. And it's exactly what people are saying. Yeah. And I just think that's something he should have spotted coming, really, yeah. from quite a long way off. Mm -hmm. And it does mean that if you cave to pressure, then there is an incentive to pe for yeah. people to apply pressure on other issues. Yeah, and if you're starting out as a politician, you want to start to look strong in the first instance so that you've got some armour going ahead. And I think yeah. if you're doing all these U-turns earlier on, you get a reputation for being a flip-flopper. Well, yeah, there have been other U-turns, haven't they? We've heard that all those pledges he made over summer in the leadership campaign are now up for rebuke. So this is, a, I, think, I think, a really, really interesting, yeah. almost constitutional issue, because he made lots and lots of pledges, including 10 pledges on sorting the migration problem and many, many other things during that leadership contest. 
But those were pledges made to this very small Conservative Party membership, not to the country, but to the members. And he lost that election. So what is the status of pledges made in an election if you've lost it? Now, the answer is that's all we really know about Rishi Sunak's wider political philosophy, so they matter. But they are now going through them all in number 10, looking at the cost, the deliverability, the plausibility of each of those pledges for the first time, which means that there is almost an entire blank sheet. He, he says he wants accountability. How can he be accountable if there's nothing that we can, as it were, pin on him? The, uh, he goes back to the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. And he goes back to that again and again and again because he's trying to answer the charge that he is not really constitutionally allowed to be prime minister. He didn't win that 2019 election. It was Boris Johnson, who, by the way, is rusting around in the undergrowth again very vigorously this week. <laughs> um, so his answer is that wasn't Boris's manifesto. That was the Conservative Party manifesto. That was my manifesto, too. And therefore, as prime minister, that is what I look back to. But a very interesting choice of words. When he spoke outside Downing Street, he said that he was going to stand by the promise of that manifesto, not the promises in that manifesto, not what it says on page four about education or whatever, but the promise, the general kind of warm glow. Trust me on the warm glow, but not the details. And that really won't wash. Yeah. I mean, that's probably why voters are so keen on a general election. On the day that Liz Truss resigned, I was out reporting in Middlesbrough and everyone assumed there would be one. It wasn't even let's have one. It was when is it? You know, and I think that's partly why, because people feel a real detachment from what the new agenda is, which it will be why he's having to say that he's going back to the 2019 manifesto all the time. Yeah. And I think one of the things that sort of the questions that will be answered with the budget rather would be like, what is this government for? What's it all about? I think like... Because when you look at sort of the cabinet, it's like you've got someone like Andrew Mitchell on in international yeah. development, and then you have someone like Suella Braverman as Home Secretary, and it just, mm. it's just a bit of a weird mishmash. There is a story, is there, Rick? There's not a thread that seems to run through it that says mm. this is who Rishi Sunak is and where he's going to take the country. Mm. And I wonder if, because we'll get to see what compromises he's going to make in the yeah. budget, that we'll learn a bit more about what yeah. his priorities are. But it's a bit, it's a bit of a puzzle at the moment. <laughs> yeah. and, and a puzzle that Labour has to figure out. This is my last question to you before um, the second section. But how do you think Keir Starmer has been doing in response to a Rishi Sunak premiership? And what are the challenges for Labour that it presents? Well, first of all, can I just say, it's really, really good to see some relatively grown up proper exchanges across the Chamber of the House of Commons. Starmer, I think, has been doing extremely well. I think he's been much more focused. He's sounded almost as if he meant it more than before. A little bit angry, a little bit, there's been more of a cutting edge, which we've needed to see. There was a line, start governing for once and get a grip. Yeah, I thought that was quite good. His questions are shorter. His sentences are shorter. He sounds more pumped up. He sounds more like the leader a lot of Labour Party MPs always hoped that he was going to be. So he's been doing well. But I have to say that Sunak has been doing much better in response than you might have expected. It's completely different from the trust performances and in a good way different from the Boris Johnson performances. There is less bluster. He still avoids questions, but there is less just general kind of noise and vocabulary. Uh, Johnson was the great adverbs and adjectives prime minister. Sunak is the numbers prime minister. But I think those have been more serious exchanges. I think where Keir Starmer is absolutely right is telling his shadow cabinet again and again, just don't believe these opinion polls. They're not real. You know, you're going to have to fight for every single vote. There's a long, hard slog 
election coming up. In a way, we're all in the early stages of that election campaign. We just don't know whether it's going to take for four weeks or two and a half years. Mm. And Rishi Sunak seems to be pulling ahead on economic competence, which is an important measure in elections. Is that something that they're talking about in Labour circles? I think that's something that still worries them. They know that that's their, that's their weak spot is always going to be on the economy. And it seems there's a quite a lot of polls that put Rishi Sunak as an individual leader ahead of Keir Starmer as well, which kind of worries them, which I think that's why probably seeing a step up in tone from the Labour leader. Mm. But yeah, Starmer doesn't seem to want to allow them any, any optimism. He wants them to kind of bed down saying, you know, we need to behave like we're behind in the polls and that the election's two years away. Yeah, it's like a a long slog. But I think Sunak really needs to get like some new lines. Mm. I think I, I, tired, I think. Yeah, he did it his first week and his second week just doing this whole, oh, well, you campaigned to put Jeremy Corbyn in, in number 10 and, oh, yeah. but you campaigned against Brexit. You know, it's kind of like we've heard all of those ones before. Stam has been leader for two years now and the public's quite used to him and they're kind of they know that he's not Jeremy Corbyn. They know that Jeremy Corbyn's been booted out and he's had the Labour whip removed. So I think like Labour seems to have responded and to the challenges as they are now when it comes to that sort of duel at the dispatch box. But I don't know if Sunak's quite there yet. He's going to have to change the record a little, I think. Yeah, I think one thing that probably is more likely to gain political traction is this. Well, what's your plan? You know, that's often what you hear from voters, actually, is, well, I always see Keir Starmer criticising them, but, you know, what's his idea? Well, the answer on immigration, because I was asking the, the policing shadow minister about this, I said, well, so what is your plan? And she sat down and read out about five pages of extremely detailed immigration policy. So a lot of it is there, but it needs to be honed down and turned into not necessarily five pledges, but certainly a relatively small number of quite short sentences that people at home start to repeat to each other. That's what needs to be done. It's more of a sharpening and selling job, I think, than, than, than the raw policy. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Docks on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents. May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain Leah Williamson can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. <laughs> Andrew, what do we call it? <laughs> well, I have to say it to you, yeah. You Ask Us. Sorry, I've, I'm Sorry. cringing as much as you are. No, no, um, no, no. So, uh, our question this week is from Ellen. Thanks, Ellen. How have we got to the point where it's deemed acceptable to focus on a politician's appearance or presentational style? There could be any number of reasons for their appearance or stumbling over words. These could be linked to a disability, mental health, neurodiversity. I thought this was a really good question because Rishi Sunak, first of all, has been mocked for being short, but you've had Liz Truss, who was mocked for tripping over her words, tripping over the quoting of Seneca when she left office, for example. And um, you've also got Matt Hancock as well, who is off to the jungle doing I'm a Celebrity in Australia. And, you know, he's long been mocked on social media for looking a bit socially yeah, awkward, yeah. maybe it's the polite way of saying it. Is it right that this has a place in our political commentary, do you think? The way we talk about invasion, you know, the stupid like culture wars rhetoric allows those kind of comments to become more commonplace because, it is, you know, the debate can quite quickly become a bit schoolyard. Mm. Um, but I think it's a really interesting point and I was kind of like, personally quite uncomfortable with the way Liz Truss was, was talked about. It just seemed to go a little bit too far and yeah, I, don't, I, I wonder if it would be more helpful to talk more about policy rather than, yeah. you know, someone's personal presentational style. But it's also something you can't really avoid because mm. it's, it's how humans react under pressure and how else do you describe, you know, the emotions they're going through and how they're coping if you can't actually describe how they present themselves, you know, it's kind of unavoidable as well in some ways. I think there's a huge difference in this probably between disability, weight, height, yeah. shape, and so forth on the one hand, and neurodiversity or ability to be eloquent, because politics is after all a trade, and an essential part of the trade is communicating. And if you are a bad communicator, you will not be a successful politician, period, because that's an essential part of it. And therefore to say that somebody can't make compelling speeches, doesn't have the right language, is perfectly legitimate line of criticism, I think. The, the, the interesting, as it were, grey area is where somebody is struggling because they have got some mental illness or some problem in their upbringing or background which limits what they can do or say. But again, you have to be really careful. Do you say, do you give Donald Trump a partial pass because he had a very, very tough early background and difficult relationship with his father? Absolutely not. It's too, I'm sorry, these jobs are too important to get those considerations in. If you are having a huge impact on all of our lives, then that's what matters. And the fact that you might have some neurodiverse problem in the background should not stop you know, full-scale criticism. You don't attack somebody for the way they look or the fact that they lisp or whatever it might be. That's just crass. And we all know that from the playground upwards. But to judge and from time to time condemn people's ability to communicate, I think is an essential part of the way we do politics. And I just want to ask one more question, loosely based on this. What do you make of Matt Hancock's decision to, to go on reality TV? I just can't understand why he would <laughs> consider it. I think the main reason for that is because we've got the COVID inquiry starting fairly, fairly <laughs> the soon. The safest places to be in the jungle. And I just think that's disrespectful to families who have got, you know, he was the health secretary during the pandemic, was really traumatic for a lot of people. And I just think you should be taking that seriously, really, and be thinking about how they might respond to it. I just wish he'd had somebody opposite him over the breakfast table and say, Matt, absolutely not. Stop right there. Because, you know, Rachel's point about the COVID inquiry is quite right. He's also got a book coming out about his experiences during the pandemic, which would have given him an opportunity to be heard again about the case for the government's defence during that period. It would have been a really interesting thing, but he's off in the jungle instead. 
I think he looks at people like Ed Balls, who became so much more popular after politics when he did Strictly and, and cooking programs and so on, thinks I can be Ed Balls. He could be Ed Balls, but Ed Balls has left politics and Matt Hancock hasn't quite yet. No. And I thought it was telling that I think it was a spokesperson or someone around him was saying, well, he's not going to be in government again, so he's off to do this work. Kind of undermines the role of the MP, doesn't yeah, it? Which still might tell you why his Conservative uh, Association seemed a bit... I do think he's a man in pain. I do think that moment when he was standing with everybody else, uh, clapping and oh. applauding Rishi Sunak, arriving at central office to be greeted as the new leader and prime minister, and Rishi Sunak appeared to absolutely snub him was extraordinarily humiliating for Matt Hancock. And it was played again and again and again on the television. And I think that must have been really hard for him. And here we are talking about it again. Here I might talking about yes, it again. Sorry, Matt. If it, was a, if it was a snub, you know, it might have just... People are assuming it was, but it might not have no, been. You know, he might have just... You've got cameras and people yeah. around you and you're... He might have just been hugging every just, other person yeah, rather than everyone. Nice. You're best yes. to look normal and yes. get to the steps. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, both of you. I know it's a busy week, so thanks for coming and chatting. I'm a nush. Nearly at Panto season. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Rachel Wearmouth and Andrew Marr. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. WarbyParker.com slash covered. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.